You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn for our Old Testament reading to the prophecies of Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 10 to chapter 3, verse 5. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel, and in Jerusalem Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce says the Lord God Almighty. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and who deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So far, for our Old Testament reading, let's turn now to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, the verses 1 to 8. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. 
Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as you can find it confessed and summarized in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 108 and 109, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in 1955, my parents, siblings, and I moved to the northern outskirts of the city of Toronto. We moved there because it was cheap. My father managed to find an acre and a half for $3,500. And on it, he started to build a garage, and then he hoped to build a house. When we moved into the garage, it was not yet finished, and the house was nowhere in sight. And as for the neighborhood, it too was pretty well non-existent. There was no road to speak of, just some muddy tracks in the middle of a field. And looking around you, you might see a partially built shack or house in the distance, but mostly it was open spaces. There was no city water. You had to get your shovel, a few sticks of dynamite, and make your own well. And next door, you might be able to find some chickens and perhaps a few pigs and the occasional cow. You see, this really was country living. But go back today, and what do you see? You see an unrecognizable neighborhood. The roads are all paved, the city services are all in, the shacks have given way to million-dollar homes, chickens, pigs, and cows have given way to exotic cats and prancing poodles. All in all, the landscape has changed drastically. But not just the neighborhood landscape, also the moral landscape has changed drastically. 
You know, back in the 1950s and 60s, our road was made up of married folk and families, and some of them rather large. Back then, everyone got married. There was one couple on our road who was said to be living common law, and they were the talk and the scandal of the neighborhood. Back then, most people had an ugly television antenna on their roof and perhaps even rabbit ears in their homes, and they watched the Lone Ranger, Roy Rogers, leave it to Beaver, the price is right. And back then, abortion, homosexuality, pornography, and all things sexual were spoken about in rather subdued and hushed tones. But look at it now. The neighborhood has gotten fancier and fancier, but the lives of the people in it have gotten messier and messier. There are more broken marriages than whole ones. There are more divided families than united ones. There are more conflicted and messed up kids than ever before. Television via cable and satellite, as well as the Internet stream, a huge diet of violence, sex, profanity, immorality into these upscale mansions. Truly, in the last 50 years, our standard of living has gone to undreamed of heights. But our standard of morality has gone into the tank. As a nation, we have lost our moral moorings. When it comes to sex, we have the habits of an alley cat. Yes, and because of that, beloved, we badly and desperately need the Ten Commandments. If as a nation we are going to extract ourselves from the sewer... We need help. We need a standard. We need a norm, a code, a guide, something to live by and to keep our lives on track and intact. But we also need more. We need a real determination and a burning commitment to live in this way as well. Sound revolutionary, right? Sounds radical, perhaps sounds new. Not really. As a matter of fact, it's all very, very old. Already ages and ages ago, God gave to his people and in them to all of humanity ten rules for sane, sober, sound, and safe living. And he said, keep these rules and you'll thrive. Keep them and you'll know peace and happiness and contentment and security. They're called the Ten Commandments. Yes, and over these last weeks, we have been looking at these commandments one by one, and now we've come to the seventh one. We've come to the seventh commandment, which says, very simply and succinctly, you shall not commit Adultery. 
In other words, here we have come to a commandment which addresses the world of marriage and sexuality. So how does one deal with that huge area in a few words? Of course, I realize the commandment could have been worded differently. It could have been put positively. You shall love your spouse, for example. Or it could have been made more general. You shall keep control of your sex life. Or it could have been worded even more briefly, shun immorality. But that's not what we have before us. The actual wording of the commandment uses the key word adultery. And indeed, it uses that particular word as a springboard to get us into this whole area of marriage, relations, and sexual activity. And so this afternoon, let's see together where it leaps and where it lands. I preached to you on the following theme. Keep your marriage vows. And we shall look at those vows before God, to one another, and for life. Well, beloved, before we get into this commandment, we need to step back for a moment and we need to remind ourselves about something, something rather basic and something fundamental. And if you ask what, well, we need to remind ourselves as to exactly who is doing the speaking here. And if you look very closely, you can see it is God. You can see that, for example, in Exodus 20. You can see it in, in Deuteronomy 5. Here before us, we have the words of God. We have the commandment of the Almighty. And as a result, we are not dealing here merely with some bright human ideas. We're not listening to some talk show hosts go on and on. We're not paying heed or lip service to all kinds of surveys and survey results. No, these are divine words. They come from God. And you know, that means they're special and they're unique and they're powerful. And this means, too, that keeping them brings benefits, ignoring them, brings trouble. Human advice is valuable. Divine advice is even more valuable, but divine commands are utterly essential. Keep them and you live. Violate them And you die. Yes, and that goes for all of the things mentioned in these commandments. And it also goes for the seventh commandment in marriage. And indeed, some people would say, and I think rightly, that they go in in a special sense for marriage. And why in a special sense? Because you need to realize there is this special connection between God and marriage. You can garner that quite easily from the pages of the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. For openers, we are introduced to God there as the marriage inventor. 
First, he makes man as male and female. He makes them in his own image and likeness. He gives them special gifts and talents and abilities and offices. And second, in terms of order, he first makes man and calls him Adam. But then he soon notices that Adam has a problem. Adam has a problem connecting, relating. He can't find a partner, a soulmate. And third, notice God does something about that problem that Adam has. God makes Eve. And fourthly, he does more than just make her. Scripture says he makes her and he brings her to the man. God, you see, is the marriage inventor. It's his big, bright idea. He's the ultimate marriage planner. Marriage is his unique invention. But there's also more, for not only has God invented marriage, God also soon laid down some very basic principles for marriage. You find them in the well-known words of Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Quite simply, and you may have heard that before, marriage is first of all about leaving, then about cleaving, and finally about weaving. When you marry, you leave the parental home behind. You depart from the soft embraces of your parents. And instead, you cozy up to your new partner and wife or husband and make a new home with him or her. And finally, in that context, you also begin the the wondrous, mysterious process of uniting. Of becoming one in body, soul, and spirit. And so God invents marriage, God regulates marriage, but notice, he, he also sustains it. When God originally made man and woman, he made them naked. They didn't have any clothes, they didn't need any clothes. And it was fine with them, because scripture says they felt no shame. But then they rebelled against God and all sorts of horrible things began to happen. And one of them is that they became very self-conscious about themselves and they knew shame for the first time. As well, they knew cold. For somehow the fall also affected the climate. So what happened? Well, notice God, the marriage inventor, and God, the marriage regulator, becomes God, the marriage provider. He makes garments of skin for them. He clothes them. He provides for them. He provided then, and you can say he's been providing ever since. And one more thing, beloved, to take note of is the fact that he protected them. Who watched over Abraham and his wife? Who safeguarded Sarah in the palaces of Pharaoh and in the tents of King Abimelech? 
who devoted one of his Ten Commandments to marriage and said, you shall not commit adultery? Who established punishments and penalties for marriage violators? Who keeps on stressing the sanctity of marriage all the way through the Scriptures? You see, marriage is his special creation. If you violate it and do not keep your marriage vows, then you'll have more than spouse trouble or children trouble or parent trouble or legal trouble or financial trouble. Scripture says you're going to have divine trouble. Hebrews 13.4 is very clear. God will judge the adulterer. And Revelation 22 states that outside the city of God, on the outside looking inside, are the sexually immoral. And that includes the adulterers. All those who do not repent. Now, it's true, the writers do not elaborate on exactly what the nature of the trouble or the judgment will be. But we know it takes many, many different forms. You look around you. You compare stories. It doesn't take long to see that so much of this marriage rupture ends in lifelong pain. Sometimes to perpetual war with one's children. Or to a life of poverty. Or to a road of endless Divorces and to more. Have you ever met a happy adulterer? And truly, beloved, all of this should be enough to make us see that the way forward in marriage is to keep your marriage vows. And of course, it's also to be realized that keeping one's marriage vows is not just a matter of listening to God. It's also a matter of relating well to one another as marriage partners. And in that connection, this is perhaps as good a time as any to say a few things to all of you husbands here. I pick on husbands because I'm one and because we are a rather forgetful breed. You still remember, by the way, your marriage vows? Do you recall what you promised? For one, you promised to love your wife. Well, and then we're not talking about the mushy, syrupy, sentimental fluff that passes for love today. Biblical love is always deeper and wider than that. Paul says that it's patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, takes no delight in evil. 
And on the positive side, he says that it protects and, and trusts and hopes and perseveres. You can read all about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in addition to love, there's also guidance. Remember, you promised to guide her faithfully. Or to say it very simply, you promised to show leadership, direction, and initiative in this relationship. Are you doing that? Or is there a leadership vacuum in your marriage? And as well, you promised to support your wife. And that means that you made a promise to provide for her to make sure that she does not live in poverty or in want. And then, of course, I realize the times change. And today, one can wonder at times as to who is supporting who, but the general rule and responsibility doesn't change. In one way or another, it's the task and the duty of the husband to see to it that his wife is cared for. And then we come to holiness. You also promise to live with her in holiness, which means that you promise that gospel standards of morality would prevail in your marriage as well as in your home. In marriage, we do not swear and cuss at one another. We do not engage in drunken behavior. We do not get all entangled in pornography. In short, in Christian marriage, Christian values and behavior are to be in evidence. And finally, in connection with your marriage vows, we come to the promises. And they are those promises not to forsake one another, but to be true to one another always in all sorts of circumstances and situations. You know, in life there are four fair-weather friends. They are friends who are only friends as long as the money, the power, and the influence lasts. And once those go... They're gone as well. And in the same way, you can say there are also fair-weather marriages. Spouses who only stick around as long as there's fun and money and health. Are you that kind of a husband? Oh, and what about all of you wives? Most of what has just been said to the husbands here can also be said to you. You've mostly made the very same vows. The only difference is between your vows and his are in the areas of obedience and assistance. And both are controversial today. Modern wives do not 
submit, and they do not obey. And neither are they assistants or helpers. Modern wives lead and take charge. They want to be like their husbands. And that, says the scripture, is a mistake. Biblical wives want husbands who know how to lead and then to lead tenderly. And biblical wives do not want to take charge but are content to let their husbands think that they are in charge. So wives, do you live in Love, holiness, do you keep your promises not to forsake, but to be true always? You know, if the truth be told, we who are marriage will admit that we fall far short in this department almost every day. None of us are perfect vow keepers by nature. There are no instant perfect Christian husbands. There are no instant perfect Christian wives. What all of our marriages need are daily doses of human effort. And along with that, they need boatloads of commitment, patience, and humility. But even more, they need divine help and blessing. Yes, and thankfully, what we need is also available. You know, our God, who so wondrously invented the holy state of marriage, who's been protecting and nurturing it all through the centuries, does not leave us to fend for ourselves. For one, you can say he gives us of himself. His love and care, his wisdom and counsel, his faithfulness and help are are there for us every day. They're there for the asking for the praying. You know, if he goes out of his way to close Adam and Eve, who have just, so to speak, spit in his face with their disobedience, you can be sure he'll go out of his way to assist you. So God gives of himself. God also gives of his spirit. If anything one can say, that the Holy Spirit is the marriage mechanic. We all need one of those to keep our cars running smoothly. And in the same way, we need the Spirit to keep our marriages running and humming. His power, His gifts, His fruit enables us to keep going. And when we fail, as we surely will, and when we fall flat on our faces, as we do time and time again, there is still God. There is God, but this time there is God with his Son. As an atoning sacrifice for all of our failures and all of our sins and shortcomings. And what that means in marriage is that Christ has the power. To forgive our angry words. 
our silly arguments, our spiteful accusations, our tempered tantrums, our neglect, and even our unfaithfulness. He is the Savior from sin. And that includes marriage sin as well. So, beloved, realize that Christian marriages don't fall out of the sky. They're the result of divine and triune work. They are the result of much prayer and deep patience. They are also the result of abiding love and constant faithfulness. And may that be present in your marriage. May that be evident in your relationships. And may the result be a happy marriage made for life. Oh, I know sometimes people talk about marriage as a life sentence. And what they mean to say is that marriage time is akin to jail time. It also comes out to that same effect in the comments that people made, we are happily married. She's happy and I'm married. But let me be so bold as to ask you, does that describe you? True, the Bible says marriage is meant for life. But not just for any old kind of life. It's not meant for a life of dullness, drabness, routine, laziness, indifference, coldness, distance. Alas, some marriages are like that. They're paper marriages. Marriage is a name. They're there for appearances. But beloved, don't you think for one moment that that's what God wants in your life. He's not going to give you any medals on the day of days just because you stuck it out to the bitter end. Now, what our God wants are marriages that thrive, that blossom, that grow and grow. Why else does he use marriage as an analogy between the relationship between his son Jesus Christ and the church? You and I know the relationship between Christ and his people, Christ and his church, is the most beautiful relationship in all the world. And when God compares that relationship to a marriage... He's saying that what he wants for you and I is the best, the greatest, and the finest things that life has to offer. He's after your happiness. He's after your joy. He's after your your laughter. Your laughter that echoes through the years and the decades and the anniversaries all the way to everlasting life. 
He once said in the Old Testament, and that bears repeating, enjoy life, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. That's what he wants. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.